Good afternoon, Rodney. How you doing? What up? What up, man? Oh, snap. Yeah, I'm doing good, man. Had a had a protein shake this morning, had my moringa, and also put in my hemp hearts. <laughs> you ever had a hemp heart? Nope. Nope. But um, I, I I believe you will enlighten us. They are nothing like artichoke hearts. They are like these itty bitty little seeds that kind of taste like nuts. Kind of like a mm. mix between a cashew and a walnut, if I had to say, with a mm. it's got an essence of um, boysenberry to it. That's completely is your up, palate that sophisticated? Absolutely, I can pull out a speck of Australian dust in my Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, also, I can pull out a, a speck of white oak in my Paso Robles uh, mm. uh, Pinot. Noat as well. Mm. Mm. But the uh, hemp hearts are these magical little, they're like little seeds and they're chewy and they're tasty and they're full of protein and mm. uh, uh, carbs and good fats. It's just it's just magical. They're so good. You put them in your mouth, mm. go in your stomach. Good old hemp hearts. There's no THCs, no CBDs, none of that. Just goodness. Okay. Hemp hearts. Hemp hearts. To a store near you. All right. Welcome to or welcome back to More in Common if you haven't been with us before. Uh, we are a podcast that seeks to inspire thoughtful and honest conversation that leads to action and positive change, ultimately exposing that we have more in common than that which divides us, even if rooted in differing points of view. You can check out our website, moreincommonpod.com, to find just about everything about us, even if you want to know a little bit more about Rod and I. You can find our podcasts, our blogs, merchandise, and how you can potentially support us in other ways as well. Um, and certainly don't forget, you know, if, if, you, if you're so inclined, leave a review on your, your podcast app or share this with, with somebody. If you, if you like what we're doing and want to help us spread the word, we really appreciate it. It's the best support that you can give us. Um, now, as for, as for uh, our, our today's recording, we have a guest, but, you know, we'll go back. We'll go back to the last episode, our last episode with uh, with Rocky Voria. Rodney, what, what did you take away from Rocky? Assumptions are the devil. Hmm. Uh, I know Rocky pretty well and mainly from a professional standpoint. And I did not know a lot of her story. I knew some of it, but I didn't know a lot of her story. And it's really easy to think that you know somebody based upon what you see of them at work. Or how you see them act at work. And I can just say that, like, some of my assumptions about Rocky were wrong. Like, I just didn't know why she's driven the way she is. And, um, and I mean, I said it to her the very first time I met her. I was like, one day I'm probably going to be working for you. And I still believe that because uh, she's ridiculously talented. Um, but that was the main thing, man. Like, just maybe... Like getting to know somebody, and which is kind of this whole experiment, right? Like getting to know somebody is powerful, <clears throat> and it and it it adds space to say, okay, well, maybe that thing about them that I liked or I didn't like or I didn't understand, maybe there's more to it, and then you get to know them, and it's like, oh, there absolutely is more to it. So that was the thing for me. What about you? 
Yeah, no, that's awesome. All of that for sure. Um, because I too know Rocky personally or professionally more than anything and getting to know her personally certainly breaks down a lot of those professional assumptions that you may tag someone with. For me, uh, there, there are two big ones. One is the nuance of parenting, right? And, and really getting into that conversation around parenting. Sometimes you have to audible because what, what works for one kid may not work for another and really being attuned to, to what's not just best for you as a parent, but what's best for, for your child. And then two, you know, I said it at the beginning in the intro, her representation of the millennial community and the millennial generation. We are fortunate to know a lot of millennials like her that have a very common um, framework of execution and they're not entitled. They're not, you know, bratty and whiny and everything that's negative about millennials in, in, in general media. So I think she's a great example of that. And it was one of the biggest takeaways for me. Now, who do we have today? Mike. Michael Carrillo. Mike grew up in South Pasadena, California. He went to Purdue University, which is where we met him. He attended Whittier Law School in Costa Mesa, California. He, After school, he went to work for Waylon and Cleric, a prestigious law firm known in the Southern California area. And then after that, somewhat to his chagrin, he joined his father's law firm. And and that is where he is today. Um, his concentration today is, is mainly on sexual abuse of minor children um, by teachers, administrators, and those in power. And uh, he's represented clients in cases all over Southern California. Uh, Keith, what do we talk about with Mike? Well, the first thing I will say is um, Mike's a, a, a respectable and amazing man that does something that I don't think I could do. And we'll, we dig into that a little bit. Um, we talk about his struggles growing up hungry. Uh, we talk a little bit about immigration um, and some of the pro bono work he did there. We talk a lot about his current practice and how the parallels of institutional uh, protection within police force, within the church, within schools have have a lot of commonality. Um, but I will also say we do talk about his current practice and there's his there's some very sensitive content that may not be easy for a lot of people to hear. So I, I only give you a heads up as we ask him what he's doing today. Uh, shortly thereafter, he starts talking a little bit about it, some examples of things that he, he, he goes to court for. So just be aware it is, it is not easy, uh, to process. And if you don't want to listen to it, fast forward, but I certainly encourage you to, and then maybe pause and process. So, um, from that, you that's know, a good, that's a good call out. Um, enjoy the show. And again, we have some audio quality issues for the first 10 minutes. Um, those are corrected later in the episode. So please uh, power through those because <laughs> we really get to the meat of, meat of things around that point. Enjoy the show. 
Hey, more common villagers. Uh, it's Keith here. Quick editor's note uh, before we get into this. I reference uh, some Pew Research data regarding immigration. It was an incorrect reference in what I was trying to convey. Uh, so what we're going to do is put into the show notes uh, the latest immigration data for from Pew. Um, so feel free to go out and research. It certainly uh, helps support, support the discussion points that we were having at that time. So um, as always, enjoy the show. Thank you. Because I really see the injustice that's going on in this, you know, for our the colored community in this in this country, Latinos, blacks, it doesn't matter who it is. So I just know that I'm doing, like I told you before the interview, doing God's work. That's how I phrase it. Mike. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I just asked you a question about justice and you answered with not for everyone. What did you mean by that? You know, we as a country talk about everybody having justice, everybody having the ability to have justice. And it just, uh, we rely on other people, uh, the majority or the people in power for that justice. And when they don't feel like giving us that justice, we don't get that justice. So to me, it's an illusory thing. It's it's a it's an illusory topic that we all want and we think that we have in, in this country, but it doesn't always exist. I myself rely on juries to determine whether my clients get justice or not. And you know, in my opinion, they don't always give you justice. They give what their feeling is. Mm. There's a lot there. Well, I rely on a jury. All my trials are with juries. Yeah. So the people, impartial, and I put that in air quotes because everybody walks into somewhere with their own personal bias, their own opinions. So even though we go through this rigmarole of asking them if they're biased or not or whether they have certain premonitions that will affect our case and our client, you can't just walk somewhere without thinking, without judging automatically. And that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to judge our clients, our facts, and whether they deserve justice or not. So for me, it's hard to really give up that power, that control to a, a 12 random people selected from the community that happen to be registered to vote, happen to be able to come to court for a few days in a row and make a decision. So that's my feeling. Mm. So where let's take a step back and I mean you're an attorney now where did you grow up and um what was that like for you what was what was childhood for Mike like for you um I grew up in South Pasadena middle class area uh, my father was an attorney but when he was going through the struggles of being an attorney he would take a lot of cases pro bono <laughs> He would uh, help his community out, specifically the Latino community, uh, because he felt it was the right thing to do. He still does that now. I still get on his case about helping these cases and clients that maybe I don't agree with. But so for me, growing up, I got to see that side, and I was always upset with him because you know all my friends had the nicer stuff, the nicer newer clothes, and but now that I. I'm an attorney and I see him and see his work and how 
people value him. It's, it's been a real change for me. When you say that you might not agree with, is it because they're pro bono and free and you could be doing cases that are making money or is it because of the nature of the cases themselves? It could be both. In my opinion, sometimes people come to him with sob stories and some of them are real. Some of them I believe and I meet with them and I talk to them and I know that they're struggling. But other people take advantage and they see him in the news. They see he has certain, you know, cases that they feel they can take advantage of so but for me growing up uh you know middle class living i never wanted for everything um but uh, i do remember in high school was difficult uh you know this this is what keeps me going as an attorney uh, in high school i remember going to sleep hungry a lot of nights and it would piss me off and i told myself i would never do that again in my life and I would never become an attorney, and now I'm an attorney, so <laughs> that didn't work out. Was the not becoming an attorney because your dad was? Because my dad was, and to me, it was so stupid that he's an attorney, and I'm going to sleep hungry. I have, you know, to borrow clothes from my friend. So that pissed me off, and that's what I strive for now. I'm, I'm still worried that I'm going to go to sleep hungry one of these days. So I guess so I, I say I have a... a good middle class upbringing but that always concerns me how long like so you said you had a good middle class upbringing how long was it in your childhood that that was part of your your existence going in? and why was it like going to bed hungry i mean i don't know uh, i remember in elementary school my mom would make me or make me and my sister our clothes from hand, she would go to the fabric store and get the the clothing and, and make it herself. And my friends always had the newest clothes. And back then, I didn't really think much of it. But obviously, looking back now, hey, they, they were struggling then. So then in high school, it wasn't anything new. You know, I had to I didn't have the coolest new clothes. I didn't have uh, well food at night, <laughs> which pissed me off. But so as far as I can remember, it's been been like that. Now, the community I live in, it's pretty middle class. You can tell that this was going on in, behind closed doors. But, I mean, I'm here. Yeah. Have you since talked to your dad about it, like his vision for the practice and the community and the whole deal? I, I have had that conversation with my mom and dad. Yeah. Very emotional, obviously, because they don't like to think about that, uh, about them as parents maybe not doing as best as they could or that disappointed in them. But, uh, you know, as far as his practice, it's been the same way, helping the Latino community for 40 years. And if that means, you know, sort of taking less pay or, you know, it affecting his family, I don't, I think that's what he's always done. How many generations um, in the States is your family? So I would be a second generation. So your dad was first. Yes, he was born here first to go to college, first to go to law school, anything like that. From where is your family? My dad was born in Arizona and my mother's from East L.A. Uh, I mean the heritage of your family. Oh, obviously. Uh, Mexican-American. Okay. What drove him to be very focused on pro bono cases, working with... Uh, people in the community uh, that maybe couldn't afford the services. So he's uh, he's always had this vendetta against the system. Uh, you know, when he was younger, he was protesting. He was in law school. He he got beat up by the police. Threw him in jail. They arrested him. They charged him. They convicted him uh, for mm -hmm. protesting when he was just running away from a scene 
And he tells me he almost lost his eye uh, when the officer used the baton and struck him in the face. And so ever since then, he's just sort of been against the machine. First there was the police, now it's against school districts, sort of anybody that goes after his underserved community, which to him is his, you know, Mexican-American people or immigrants, Latino immigrants in this country. How did that influence you, especially in the community itself? Um, I guess I couldn't really appreciate it until later on in life, like now, because I really see the injustice that's going on in this, you know, for our the colored community in this in this country. Latinos, blacks, it doesn't matter who it is, if you are not a white, uh, Christian male, because if you don't check all those boxes, you're going to be discriminated against, uh, more so if you don't speak English or you speak English with an accent, which is 99% of our clients. <laughs> Seems like you went ahead and picked up his work, uh, despite not wanting to. What did you think you were going to do? I don't know. I thought I was going to do something that made me a lot of money. What that was, I don't know. <laughs> but I know I wanted to make a lot of money and have all the nicest things. So whatever that was going to be, I wanted to do that. So where do you land on that today? Still trying to have all the nice things or what? Thank the Lord. At this point, I don't have to go to sleep hungry ever again. Right. Uh, but I am trying to balance these things out. I do enjoy traveling and living a, a good life. Yeah. But I also enjoy helping the community. And I do now, as I hate to say it, I take from pro bono cases myself. <laughs> I've, I've gone to Victorville to help the ACLU with some of those immigrant detainees who have no access to legal help. I've helped uh, other people, and I don't want to give you my resume, I don't think that's necessary, but it's a balance of the two. I, I want to live comfortably like I have been, but I also want to help because I have power, I have knowledge, I have experience that can help, and my ability to speak Spanish, which can help my community even further. Yeah, you can bridge gaps, literally. So what's your experience been working within the system? What have you seen? Just more injustice against the uh, the brown community uh, or any colored community. Uh, when I went to Victorville, I saw the most atrocious humanitarian crisis. It's not just a family separation. It's individuals that had not committed a crime people that had presented themselves to the border under the asylum protection of the international community, and they were thrown into a jail where federal prisoners are. So what they did up in Victorville is they opened up this federal pr prison, which used to house like level two, level three federal criminals. They moved the federal criminals to one wing, and they put the federal immigration detainees in another wing, and... What's even scarier is that they gave the federal immigration detainees less access to practice religion, less access to uh, classes that they can take so that they can better themselves. I mean, that's just the, the, the tip of the ice. What flowed from there was they told me that they were not giving clean clothes for a month, uh, no access to health care, to even basic Advil or any sort of medical necessities. And... Really, it's a humanitarian crisis because the only people being put there are the brown, uh, Latinos, and a lot of Indians, actually, I saw there. Native American Indian? No, like from India. Oh, India, India. India, India. What's the process supposed to be versus what's happening? So the process is supposed to be you, uh, you walk up to the border and you literally present yourself to the, uh, to the border patrol. And you say, I'm here seeking asylum because I'm, fe I'm in fear, because I'm a member of a certain group. 
a political affiliation, religion, uh, homosexual, for example, whatever, you're part of a class, and because of that, you're being persecuted in your home country. And you say, okay, well, you know, what can I do? What's supposed to be is you're supposed to... The old ways under prior administrations was sort of like a catch and release. Okay, we'll give you an ankle locator, you come to court, and we're going to set you up with a credible fear interview. That's an interview where you go further into saying, well, what exactly are you fearful of? Can you give me specifics? Have you been targeted? Has, has your group or your family been targeted? And then they're supposed to determine whether you are you can seek asylum. But now what's happening is they're just, anybody that presents themselves for asylum is being put in these federal detentions, federal prisons, instead of actually just letting them be in this country. And they're housing them there indefinitely until who knows when. And I've heard something that, I know one of the talk tracks is that the number of people trying to cross right now is overwhelming. And I read something, and I'll have to try and find the article for posting later, uh, that, that that's not true. Like, that the numbers of people trying to cross right now is the lowest it's been in probably a decade. Um, that's just rhetoric being used to cause fear. And so, my, I guess my question out of that is, like, where is the inefficiency? Is it, is it just in the fact that we have a president that's putting orders out there that's, like, detained? Or is the system that backlog that they can't process um, efficiently? Like, what what do you see that's happening? Just fear mongering. It's whatever can drum up this administration's uh, fear with his, with their constituents, with their base. And you know, the the border is no different now than it was five, ten years ago. You're still going to have people that are, you know, starving, wanting to have a better life for them and their children. I mean, if you or me were sitting in one of these Central American countries and there's gang violence ripping through your community and you have a teenage son that's about to be drafted into MS-13, what would you do? I mean, I'd take off too and present myself for asylum. So nothing's changed. It's the American dream, right? Who doesn't want a piece of that? Yeah, yearning for a better new life, right? Isn't that what the tagline is? But now it's uh, us against them and it's not just us against them. It's the white Christian male us versus all brown and whoever else now what do you say mike when i mean i guess what's the alternative we have people who are coming into this country seeking asylum what where should they be before they are presented to a court to be granted asylum or presented to a caseworker who can evaluate their circumstance and situation. I'm certainly not saying prison is the best place to be, right? But what's what's the circumstance, circumstance supposed to be versus, because then there's the other side is, okay, come into the country and then, you know, you're never going to report when you're called again until you get arrested and you're just going to lay low for a while. Um, I mean, what, what is the... Or said another way, how does it work for like, like how a is white it, dude from How here? is it supposed to work? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think the way the system worked before was just fine. Put in, uh, you know, if they want to come in, present themselves, an ankle locator works just fine. Mm. And they can keep track of those persons that are seeking asylum. So is that what they, now, is that what they would do? They would give you an ankle locator and then... Yes, it, and I'm not... A hundred percent. I don't practice immigration law right. every day, but you know, my understanding is that they would 
give you, they would put an ankle locator on you and then you would have to come back to court when you sign. And that program was successful, the catch and release program. Now, to answer your question, what do, you know, white Christians from Europe do? You know, if you come into this country on a tourist visa, you can overstay that visa. And then there's no real tracking of you. But, you know, it happens from people from all over the country. And then what happens? Then you can get married to a citizen. As long as you came into this country and your last entry was lawful, then you can just adjust. You don't have to leave the country to get your paperwork done. But I think that the issue is um, a consistent treatment for all people and a humane treatment. Like, especially right now. Like, this is another another level than i think i mean this go this is like this is damn near back to uh japanese internment cap kind of days like and people gloss over that like that didn't happen and this is just like it they they uh when they first got to that facility in victorville the federal prison the the prison guards didn't know how to act because they're not really criminals right. uh, they didn't know how to treat them they told me one prison guard told me that he he, he didn't want them there that they, they don't want them there that these people are not people that commit crimes they don't know how to handle them they they were given one hour outside no clean clothes for a month you know like i said no medical attention but then even the food that they got it was frozen uh, so they couldn't eat it. They couldn't thaw it. If they asked for more, they couldn't get more. Um, they were not given any games or anything. They were given some TV in the communal room, but not much. I mean, it's it's just like the basic essentials for people that have not commit committed any sort of crime. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I can go on for days. No, no that's <laughs> good though, because what's 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 not known, and I think uh, maybe it was Pew that recently published a report that um, there are more. Canadians in this country who have followed that same path of overstaying their visa, um, so they're here illegally, then there are um, Mexicans who cross the border illegally, or anybody from the South, for that matter. I think it was 2016 data, um, but... Um, you know, but we don't we don't uproar about it. We don't yell and scream about all of the illegal white people that are in this country. Uh, we focus so much on the southern border, and if it's really about border security and it's about uh, national security and being purely illegal here has anything to do with security, then we need to collectively have uproar of all of it. And to me, it, it speaks volumes to the way we've treated brown people in this country for 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 centuries and you know continue to do so and now we just dress it up in different language you know if you come here and commit a crime well that was a preventable crime well you know what about the the white guy who commits a crime and doesn't you know, get sentenced or just gets deported and gets sent back. And, you know, we don't think twice about him. Instead, we have national news about this one illegal alien who murdered somebody. Okay. You know, how do we, you know, it's, it's impossible to reconcile at a national level without true information of what's actually happening at the border.
So I'm really glad you share that. Now you say, um, I think this is kind of a interesting turn. You don't practice immigration law. So what, not what is your primary practice? Cause we'll get to that. But what is, how much time do you spend doing cases in immigration and, and what's that? You know, what's that pull for you? I think we get it, but I'm curious. It, my, my practice is 0% immigration now. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I had a case, my last case, that's I can't get rid of, but I will stand by that man pro bono for until I can. But I, I don't practice any immigration law anymore. Uh, I just signed on because the ACLU put out a call for attorneys, especially Spanish-speaking attorneys, and I, I had to do something. I couldn't just sit by anymore. So, first, if you could explain to those, so I don't make any bastardization of of explaining it incorrectly, because what you do is real and it's intense. So, what is your primary focus? So, my primary focus now is representing children that have been sexually abused by their teacher, principal, coach, anybody that's in a position of trust, if they abuse a child, then that's where we come in and we sue the entity for failing to protect those kids. So it can be a school district, it can be a church, it can be a YMCA after school program. Or we just had a case uh, that came out on the media last week uh, involving a LAPD officer that sexually abused a police cadet that was volunteering at a station. Oh, like the, the cadet, the, the young cadet program, like the middle school or high school students yeah the high school students they volunteer their time because they want to eventually become police officers he used that position of power to groom this little girl and to abuse her how did you get into that like how did you find that path so a few years ago about 2011 2012 uh, me and my father signed up a bunch of these Miramonte cases and that was a case involved involving Mark Burnt and he was a teacher an elementary school teacher and he was caught uh, spoon feeding his semen on cookies on spoons to these little kids these elementary school age kids and what he would do is he would give them the cookies and have them take a bite or put their you know the spoon in their mouth and take a picture while he's doing it and he would also have them put cockroaches on their bodies. So what he would be doing is simulating necrophilia or having sex with dead bodies. So it was some of the most disgusting and vile stuff. And we represented about 25 of those kids. And this this case... That wasn't all of them? There were more? There was a total of, I think, about 120 kids. So just... Well, finish. So this is how you got in... This is when it started. So finish that, and then I have a question. Sure. So we started in that field, and that one got national press. And from there, I guess people thought that we just automatically handle those cases, and people would come and approach us, and other attorneys started referring us those cases. So now they know that we practice in that area. So you've decided to focus on it at this point. Yes, I actually enjoy it. I love it. This is one I want to do for the rest of my life. How do you process that? Like, you tell me that story, and it enrages me to the point where I would like to hurt somebody, right? Um, how do you process that? Like, how do you work through that? I know, and I say it so matter-of-factly, like, oh, just a teacher spoon-feeding his semen to kids. You know, it's 
it's a lot to process. I, I personally see a shrink, uh, you know, every other week. Uh, you know, everybody in this office has had to hear these horrific stories of abuse, of molestation. And, you know, at the end of the day, I just know that I'm doing good things and I'm doing my part to try and protect the next generation. Because if I make noise here, maybe a school will do better. They'll supervise the teachers, the coaches better. So I just know that I'm doing, like I told you before the interview, or this conversation, doing God's work. That's how I phrase it. So you, so talking to somebody helps, talking to a shrink. Does everybody in the office, or is it just very, like, do you encourage it for other people, or is it just up to that individual? Well, it's up to them individually. I definitely encourage it. Um, and not just for things that I hear in this office, but just for their own personal you know, health and well-being. But, uh, you know, we, we hear some of the most disgusting things, especially in this conference room that we're sitting in, yeah. things that people should never hear, should never have to experience ever in their lives. Um, well, you talk about making noise um, and schools doing better, like pe- just people doing better, uh, organizations, like from an because I think you're talking about this from an organizational level um, where you get involved. And... Um, uh, I'm curious, like, what are some of the things that organizations can do to be more proactive? Because um, I remember, actually, there was a big case at my high school. Uh, the religion teacher, who was also the and soccer coach, got caught um, in a parking lot with some of the players on his team, and, like, and, like, well, you talk about this abuse of power and these children just don't... Uh, there's a lie that goes into it, but it's like, how do, the, how do organizations become more proactive? How do, you sn- how do you sniff this out? How do you um, stay vigilant? Um, like, you got any tips on that? You know, the, the cases that we see, it's sad. It's really if, if someone stepped in and intervened at the most basic level and said, hey, wait, why is that teacher spending so much time with that student? Mm -hmm. Why is that teacher alone in the class with the student? Why are they giving hugs to that student? Even at the most basic level, they're required to report that conduct to law enforcement. But from an organizational standpoint, if... I can go on for days on this, but, you know... The child molesters aren't the ones that hide in the bushes. They're not the ones that are, you know, wearing hoodies and they're going to come and sneak attack your child, you know, at a park and try to grope them. Child molesters are the ones that are well-liked by the community and they're well-liked by the students. And that has to be or else how could they gain the trust of that student or the parent? And I'm not saying every liked teacher is a molester. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is... A lot of the times these uh, these schools, these organizations, they give the teacher too much of a benefit of a doubt. And, you know, people say, how can Michigan State happen? How can Penn State happen? The molesters are the ones that, you know, people like and they're like, well, you know, hey, this is kind of weird. Shouldn't we do something about it? Well, no, that's just, you know, that's just Jerry being Jerry. They that's just like- that's just Larry Nasser being Larry Nasser. They write it off instead of really reporting that even though they know they should is it i don't know if this is a good equivocation but like 
Jeffrey Dahmer. They're like his neighbors are like, oh, he was a good guy. He was a good dude. He's a little quiet, a little weird. Oh, if I think about it, yeah, there were some things that were off, but like, he was a nice guy. Like, um, is it like a lack of people wanting to take responsibility for saying something? Because like, oh, that's not that's their business or like what. I, I, I'm trying to get to the heart of it. I don't understand why somebody wouldn't say something. And then, like, 120 kids, like some, I'm assuming, I'm guessing somebody said something at some point. Maybe they said something to a parent, and they're like, oh, no, 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 like, that's nothing. Or, like, uh, what kind of stuff do you hear out of those, out of that? Like, how, how does that not, does somebody hear it? And then they're just like, oh, well, he's like, so it's okay, or... In that case with 120 victims... Even in the early 80s, he was caught on a field trip dropping his pants. And he wrote some note to the principal saying, you know, like, oh, I'm sorry, I wore some loose-fitting pants. Okay, you get one pass. Then in the 90s, a group of girls complained about this teacher, Mark Byrne. Said, hey, he's he's makes us feel weird. Well, so instead of reporting him, what do they do? They, they send these kids to the school psychologists and say, oh, they're just making it up. Don't worry about it. You see, there, there's, there's hints all along the way, and people just ignore them, and they chalk it up to one-time incidents, one-time issues, when really if it just starts snowballing, and people don't recognize it, don't want to intervene. And you're right. People don't want to speak up and say, like, hey, this is wrong. I need to stop this right now. They just want to go about their day and ignore everything else and hope that it just kind of goes away and it doesn't these these molesters these perverts they keep they keep doing what they're going to do because that's what their that's what their body tells them that's like innate within them that evil it feels like there's a from an organization standpoint keith and i'm curious your thought keith but like i mean most organizations want to do the thing that they're there to do right like teach make money, sell a thing. And then when things come up that interrupt business as usual, the natural inclination, I don't know if this is like an organizational thing or a human thing, is like to try and gloss over it, especially if it's a negative thing. Like let's gloss over so we can keep making money, so we can keep doing it. Because if we talk about this, we might not be able to keep doing that thing. Um, and I, I think yeah, I think there's a interesting... There, there's this this mindset of not wanting to be wrong um, is one of those things where it's like, ah, you know, was it that just looked like a, a gentle that didn't look like anything. So I'm, I'm just going to I'm not going to worry about it. And when it comes to kids, the the implications are, are so just. I mean, it's just so, it, it doesn't, it, don't worry about your ego or the other person's ego and you can address it and handle it and manage it and create a circumstance. You know, there's always that, that challenge of, I think this is, I don't want to ruin somebody's reputation, but it's like, <clears throat> if they're doing something that they're you ruined. know that like, li- listen, I, I, some teacher walks by a kid and pats him on the back. You know, there's no, like, it's like, okay, now all of a sudden he starts grabbing people's butts and it's like a, a coach and it, it's like, wait a second, there's something off about that. We need to, we need to tell somebody about this. This doesn't look right. And then it needs to get looked into. It can't be this, well, you know, he's a nice guy and he's this. And it, it becomes this weird psychological pull of, of not wanting to 
shame somebody or shame yourself for false accusation when true accusation is far more damaging than personal ego. But personal ego is such a motivating factor for behavior. It's, 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 and, it, and it's sad and it, and it's awful. And what I, what I come to and what I'm really curious about, Mike, is your take and position on this. As a parent, like I constantly think about this idea of trusting my daughter with a stranger. Right. And I don't think we should live in a world of mistrust. I don't want to not trust 98% of people out there because of the 2% that exist. But I do want to be aware. How do you suggest parents handle these situations? Because I think that is something that a lot of people might struggle with. Well, What we find, at least in our cases, is that these predators know who to pick on. They know who to go after. And usually it's the underserved minority population. Uh, In our cases, it's a lot of the Latino communities where the parents maybe don't speak English. There's one parent at the home. Uh, You know, we never find cases where there's highly educated people, two-parent households, where they're always going to campus, they're being vigilant. And that's just honestly because I think the predators know who to go after. Hmm. Yeah, you, you pick the weak one in the flock, right? You're not going to go after the strongest one that can fight for itself, or the parents are going to show up in your face. Exactly. And and usually what happens is it's not where a, a teacher or a parent will find walk in and find the teacher, you know, doing some sort of sexual act like oral copulation on a little, you know, eight-year-old girl, it'll start off slow with some little things, some inappropriate things, sitting on the lap, uh, you know, too much hugging, things like that. So as far as what parents can do is just really be vigilant. That's what I always tell everybody in the office here that has kids, you know, go to campus, let the teacher know who you are, let them know that you will be there to, to, to support your kids. And I know for single parents, that's not as easy. And it's, it's hard for me to say that. But be as vigilant as possible. Do you think there's an opportunity for those households where there are two parents, maybe they're uh, wealthier or have better situations, they're going to be a stronger position to teach their kids to look for, look for signs of a teacher doing something to somebody else? Like, do you see that being a possibility? Because, you know, that's what my... My ego thinks about how wonderful my daughter is. I'm a teacher to be the one that spots this stuff. Do you see that ever being, you know, how some of these things come to light? Like the kid said something or noticed something or... No. Yeah. Sadly, no. Because the parents always teach their kids to respect the teacher, mm. to respect the coach, respect the clergy or the priest, whoever, the pastor. And so when a teach when a student feels like something is wrong, they feel like they're going to be in trouble for it if they speak up. And every time all the kids that we, we speak to, all the kids that reported it, even after they reported and people tell them like, you know, hey, that's a good thing you reported it, they always feel like it's their fault. Like they did something wrong. So I don't see that as being a possibility. And I hate to say that, but these kids, they always feel like it's their fault. Well, you see it in like divorce kids think it's their fault 
just because like oh I must have done I must be a bad kid my parents are splitting like it doesn't make if you if you're outside of that group it doesn't make sense for the kid it you know their their psyche's growing and developing so I guess that's just the way it's taken which to your point about predators picking their prey because um, you hear those stories sometimes where it's like I did tell a parent or I told I told him my uncle was on was doing this or I told nobody believed me like I have a case right now where a little girl she reported her uh, second grade teacher was was touching her making her feel weird she spoke to the principal about it and the principal took like a 45 minute you know interview with her and two other kids and said you know I believe you I, I respect you you know thank you for coming forward what happens that principal goes and calls the parents and says hey your daughter needs to stop making up stories and so what happens that poor little girl she gets beat by her parents for making quote making up stories just because that principal said you're making up stories well what happened well that that teacher later came out he, he had been molesting kids for years so it's hard for kids to come forward and look what happens when they do wow and a uh, key to your question I, I think it's hard to put on kids. No. To say, like, you should be the... Yeah. You should be the... I think those parents, however, should be vigilant for more than just their kid. Yeah. Like, Interesting. Like, and be aware of the fact that not every household has the same... Like... I haven't been around schools in a while, but I'm at the Boys and Girls Club. So, like, you can tell what parents show up. Like, and those parents can see the other kids don't have parents that are showing up. It's like, you know, like just being involved with an extra kid or just paying attention and saying something to an administrator. Like, I think if people took a second to give a damn about people outside of just their unit, then it would start to help. And then like, but you've got like, it's so much, it's it. there's so many layers to this. But the problem again is like, you know, Keith was saying, Nobody wants to rock the boat. And so if a teach, if a parent sees something, it's like, mm, that's a little weird. Why is that kid staying afterwards so long with the teacher just one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to say anything. I don't so want to do So they'll just get in the car and be like, don't you do it, little Bobby. Like, you, hey, we're not, you're not going to be spending extra time with Mr. Blah, 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 but that was strange. But they won't say anything outside of that. Nobody wants, nobody likes change. Nobody likes to rock the boat. Yeah, I think. Just a natural human instinct. I think, um, you know, you bring up a good point, Rodney, and, and certainly, Mike, I mean, that's, that's ultimately what happens, but I think it's, it's important. You, you can't teach your kid that, hey, look out for molesting behavior because you're, you know, you're, it's like, what are you teaching your kid, right? Um, but, but at, What's happening on Saturdays? Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, as parents, and, and, you know, sometimes it just takes one parent to be courageous. And remembering what Vu said, our kids grow up to marry other people's kids. So, you know, looking at that environment when you're there, whether you are the one parent in school that's just paying attention. Hey, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a proud man, but I don't have a lot of pride. Like, uh, if I see something that, that, that's broken, I'm going to be the one that wants to pay attention. And, you know, every community, every group needs needs just someone to just be there at that moment and, and speak up. You mentioned uh, taking a pivot. Uh, the clergy and this week as we're recording 
um, a what 880 page grand jury report against the state of Philadelphia. Have you kept up on that? And what, what's your a little bit? Yeah. Um, do you see a lot of that in your community with the church? Yes, I do. It's uh, sort of that same mentality where it's like they give the priest or they give the principal, they give the coach the benefit of the doubt instead of getting them out of there. And everybody thinks like, oh, the, the child will be okay. Don't worry about them. They'll be fine. They'll be resilient. But nobody sees those kids 10, 20, 30 years down the road when they try to have their own kids. They fall in love for the first time. They try to have sex for the first time. Those kids get messed up forever. And nobody thinks about that. It's just sad. Uh, quick correction. It's a Philadelphia city. Pennsylvania. Did I say Philadelphia? Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, I meant yeah. Pennsylvania. Yeah. The entire state. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a six out of the eight parishes mm-hmm. in the state. That were... Hey, were but the, are, other, are the other two did uh, have individual... Um, indictments. Oh, so eight of the eight all had oh, cases. It's the first time in, in this So it's the first time that an entire state basically has been... And it doesn't shock me. It's the same thing that we see all the time. Instead of holding those priests accountable because it's, hey, it's Rodney. I know that guy, Rodney. He's a real nice guy. Let's just, let's just cut him a break. Let's transfer him somewhere else and let him be someone else's problem. We see that in our cases, too. They transfer teachers from different schools, different levels, just to get the problem away from me. But, hey, I like John or Joe or whatever his name is. I, I want him to give him another chance. And it's wrong. Yeah. It's- like they can get another chance, but elsewhere, like... Like you can't, you can't still be serving children. So it, you cannot. What's it like prosecuting clergy? What's that experience like? Is it different than most other institutions? I mean, there are certainly some similarities, but what's that like from from a prosecution standpoint? Well, it, when you say prosecution, um, for, for me that that sounds like a prosecutor that's trying to put someone in jail. But as far as like a civil case, I guess we do prosecute our cases. Mm. But I just want to be clear, I, I'm not a prosecutor okay. in any way putting people in jail or anything like that. Got it. You're, you're representing your clients against the institution for damages. For damages. Correct. What's it like? Which is a good clarification. Yeah, it is a great clarification. What is that? Is it systematically different going after the clergy versus a school system or anything else in a molestation no it's not really that much different it's the same mentalities and it's also the uh, protect the shield you know instead of doing what's right and instead of speaking out and you know saying what we know you could say which is you saw these things you know maybe you missed a few things here and there you could have done better but instead it's like nope didn't see anything nope i'm not here to help you no i don't care about your kid protect the shield it's the same mentality. Now you say protect the shield. Um, obviously, a tie to police departments. Police that do that. Um, yep. You ever get involved in in um, present? Not necessarily. I mean, molestation, but um, cases against the police department. Yes, that's uh, the other area that we handle it here at our office as well police abuse excessive force mostly police shooting cases so someone's shot and killed by a police officer that's the types of cases that we also handle in your experience 
um, how many police officers out there are really heinously committing excessive violence against against we'll call them perpetrators or people of interest i wish i could tell you you know and, and everybody always asks me you know well do you hate all cops and it's like no i have some really good friends that are police officers sheriff's deputies they're not all bad it's just i'm going after the ones that are the bad apples and i i want them to not hold their position of power but you know i can only do so much i can sue the police department for these officers and the way they acted and i wish i could give you a percentage but just like the community there's good people there's bad people when you're your cases that you've tried that you've worked on for police is there a skew um a, a skew to the balance of um white black brown is there is there is there an imbalance there or is it equally distributed in terms of the police officers using excessive force uh well actually i didn't <laughs> think about it that way but that way and then also to the victim oh well obviously the victims are always people of color latinos blacks because you know but what what i think is really important is what's even things out a little bit more is camera phones social media because without these devices without these these you know phones my clients would get charged with more heinous crimes they would spend a lot more time in jail so thankfully these camera phones are, are helping us um and then in terms of the police officers just to go back to your original question yeah. sorry i went off on a yeah. tangent there but you know in la it's such a diverse community we see a lot of uh police officers that are latino black white as well but it's still that same mentality it's us against them and if you saw recently what came out is that there's another sheriff's department that had like had a gang uh, they call them cliques and this has been a problem within the sheriff's department in la county for years they have these cliques and it's if there's a a police shooting and they kill someone they might get a tattoo with a guns on their tattoo if they kill someone else they might put smoke on their tattoo like on the guns yeah building it out based on their what they did and but that's, that's just like a gang like, it is a gang i've handled a case where you know these police officers they're arresting someone and two people are standing by they come in with their batons flying luckily there was a video on that one but it, it is a gang and sometimes they treat it like a gang it's us against them mentality and this kind of goes back to the original sentiment about justice and it not being for everybody in this country because citizens fundamentally have this mentality that you are a criminal thus any action by a police officer is justified but there's a justice system they, a, a police officer is not judge jury and executioner and if you were selling cigarettes on the side of the street Death is not a reasonable punishment by our justice system for that crime. It's not about him being a criminal. It's not about him or anything or anybody threatened by anything. It's death. And, and, and it's, the, it's the thing that I, I 
struggle with, with that argument so much because it, it underlies this, this missing point of does it matter? Like if you're running away from a cop, death is not a reasonable response. Right. right. If you're carrying a gun, death is not a reasonable resp- response, especially if you're lawfully doing so. Yet, oh man, like let a white dude get shot at a traffic stop for having a gun. But I want you, what would happen? Yeah, especially in front Uproar. of his kid. Especially in front of his kid. <laughs> you know, just like oh, Philando Castile, Castile, right? Yeah. Castile. Yeah, he he had a weapon. He told the officer he had a weapon, and then he went to go get his ID, and then pop, boom, seven times. Exactly. Now, what's interesting, I think, that you mentioned the the populace of police officers isn't always white committing crimes against people of color, or you know, abuses against people of color because of the institution of policing that ultimately prejudices against people of color, regardless of the color of the police officer. Um, and I think that's, that, that's, it's a, it's not to say, Oh, you know, black people hurt black people too. It, it really underpins the, the problem and why these things don't get prosecuted, why police officers do not get prosecuted despite legitimately committing murder um, because there is this sense of institutional protection in the same way the church institutionally protects themselves against molesting yeah. children yet we we can't we as as people it, it causes our bodies physiological stress thinking about an 18 month old in Pennsylvania getting sexually molested, molested by a priest. It's disgusting. Yet, institutionally, the same mentality happens when a police officer, regardless of color, shoots a black man running away from them. Yet the response that a lot of people have is, well, he shouldn't have been running away. It's the same thing. Well, and they try to justify the actions... They try to say that, oh, well, he might have been reaching for his waistband. And what we always find is that the police, the chief or whoever is making comments to the media, they try to get ahead of things like, oh, he had a prior record of drug possession and this and that. So it's they're justifying their conduct. And you're right. I agree with you. In L.A. County, a police officer hasn't been prosecuted in something like 30 years for his actions on the job, even though there have been murders, there have been killings by officers that, that were wrong. These are families. I represent kids that whose parents have been shot and killed by police, mothers and, and fathers who have to bury their kids, and nobody sees that side of things. Do you see... So kind of going back to that idea of parents paying attention, this is the, this is something I have a hard time reconciling. Um, because like as a percentage of bad apples, right? I mean, the, the old adage is one bad apple spoils the bunch. I think, I mean, you, you have friends who are cops. We, we all respect. Yeah. We, we all have respect for the institution. My father was a police officer. Is it that same mentality that causes the vast majority of good cops 
to not say anything about the bad cops that ultimately because that's the institution but at the same time it's ruining your reputation too because you're not you're not doing anything about it or is it deeper than that within the police police fraternity i think it goes back to our history as humans you know it was my tribe against your tribe and i'll protect my tribe at all costs it's the same thing it's just now the, the police department has their tribe and the community has their own tribe and it's I'm going to protect my fellow tribesmen, you know, no matter what it takes, even if it's someone's life is sacrificed, even if someone, well, it's, well, kind of on the edge, I'm still going to give my fellow tribesmen the benefit of the doubt. Which is strange because technically police officers should be part of the tribe because they live, well, they should live in the community. They may not live, they usually don't live in the community that they serve, or not usually, often don't. Um, but then, like, we we, our taxes, pay them. Like, we hire them theoretically, theoretically, to protect and serve, but it's what are they protecting and serving? And it's like, how, how, how do we, I guess the question is, like, how do we integrate the villages? Like, how do we build a trust and, like, a mutual, how do we, sh- how do we highlight the fact that there's a mutual benefit, there's a benefit for the two to be integrated and, and to care about each other? Well, I, I have friends that are officers in a, in a local police station, and, uh, you know, they grew up in the neighborhood. They're friends with some of the guys that maybe have been arrested by other officers within the department, or they're just part of the community. They, they live there. They, they, have a, they care about the community. I, I think that that's more important when it turns into us versus them, like these sheriff's deputy, you know, cliques or gangs that they are. That's when it becomes bad. You know, you can't have deputies tattooing themselves for excessive force you can't have that that mentality and it really starts from the top you know these local police departments sometimes the chief does a great job of community outreach he he encourages his officers underneath his supervision to go out you know go to these different benefits show who you are you know make sure that they know who you are that you can be trusted that you're not just the guy behind the badge and the gun you're someone that can be trusted so it, it, it really comes from the top down and if if the the superiors or supervisors are saying like, oh, well, gangs are fine within my sheriff's department, which is essentially what happened under Paul Tanaka and Sheriff Baca, who have been since been prosecuted for their, for their, you know, acts. They took that mentality too. One of them had a tattoo. Paul Tanaka had a tattoo. Tanaka had one? Tanaka had a tattoo. He was part of the, um, I forget which gang he was a part of within the sheriff's de- department, but when your top official has that same tattoo, same mentality, it's not. It doesn't bode well. That's like it's a green light. And like where I live, Gardena is where I'm at, and um, I know a lot of the officers. Like they eat by me. They, um, I would say, they hold a monthly coffee with cops all around the neighborhood. Like they do every time there is a community event, they're there. Like at, officially, like with the tent, they have the junior cadets there. Like, um, like they, they, they do that active outreach. Um, do you think there's a responsibility of citizens to reach out to police officers too? Yes, I think that's important. Uh, if they're out there in the community making an effort to show themselves, show that they're part of the community as well, I think citizens would be, I think it would be good for them to reach out as well. Do you think police should be held to a higher standard because they have guns? Okay, well, not even just because they have guns. Do you think they should be held to a higher standard? 
Yes, because the, we trust them with our safety. You know, it's, we, we're not allowed to have vigilante justice, so we put the, the power and trust in them. And I think that if you talk to any police officer, they would feel that they do, they are held to a higher standard, but whether they are held accountable is different. And for that, I mean, you know, of course, officers that don't honor that trust that's been given to them, don't honor that power that's been given to them, they abuse it. How do your friends who are, who live in the community of a local PD, you know, they're friends of yours, how do they generally respond to these what we'll call the gangs or the bad apples like do you do you talk to them about it or do do they even talk about it um i mean i i don't i have a lot of clients that live in the communities that are sort of have to deal with these gangs within the sheriff's department and you know it's kind of the same mentality they'll make eye contact i go about my way you go about your way hmm it's um, interesting. And then there's that, I got to find a better way to say this, but I'm going to say band of brothers um, mentality. I, I was at a, I was, uh, I watched a panel with a lot of different officers from all over LA and the Long Beach, the, the Long Beach chief at the time was there talking about, um, like they had a really rough year and they lost like, this was like four years ago and I think they lost upwards of six or eight officers that year and he didn't directly say it I went up and talked to him afterwards and I was like does that like losing them does that breed a mentality does that add to the us versus them like this is a war type mentality I was like I can only imagine because I know how I feel when a co-worker gets fired or you know justified or not like I know how that feels I can't imagine how it feels to have an officer, you know, a brother, a friend, a sister, taken out of the line of duty by somebody else, and he's like, "Yeah, it absolutely. Um, that that's part of it." And you know, as I think through solutions, it's like, man, how do we, how do we, how do we break that down? Like, I, and I don't know. Like, they are literally dealing with some of the worst elements of society. They're also dealing with people that are mentally ill, um, people that have varying degrees of intelligence, people from all over the socioeconomic scale, um, and and they themselves have their own issues that they're dealing with. So how how do we how, how do we expect them to deal with all these things efficiently and effectively? Um, and I don't I don't necessarily, necessarily know that I have an answer for it. Um, but I think that they're, they're asked to deal with a lot and um, and then these situations happen and it's like it's these situations like shootings or wrongful deaths or whatnot and it's like um, there's still got to be an accountability measure well yeah I agree they're the first responders sometimes and they see some of the most vile disgusting sh- shit uh, they have to see you know Detectives also have to interview little kids that have been molested. They have to deal with, you know, sexual predators. They have to deal with gang members. It's hard. I, I'm not saying that their job is easy, and it's, uh, 
you know, easy for me to make these comments about them, but obviously I understand that they have a difficult job. Mm -hmm. uh, really, I think the accountability can be, or the, the trust can be developed with like what the LEPD did, you know, make sure that everybody has a body cam video, make sure it's working and on all the time, even during these incidents. And uh, that's a way for the public to, to ensure that the police officers are being transparent, the, whole, the entire department is being transparent. And uh, it also allows the officers to do their job. I mean, they're just, if you're not a bad cop and not a bad apple, you're not going to go ahead and kill someone while the body cam video is on you. I think we got to go one step further. I mean, fact is similar to the molestation conversation we were having with schools and, or, and churches and whatnot. Like, just not being the bad one that doesn't keep you from being complicit when you know that somebody else is doing something that's off color. You know, like, you're like, oh, well, that's just that's just Bob, you know, doing his thing. Like, So we're, we've got seven minutes um, left, and I wanted to ask this question earlier, going back to um, protecting children. Mm -hmm. As parents, what are parents' options? Obviously, you're, you're in L.A., um, but from a legal point, like, it's hard and you go through these systems and as a, as a parent, when something like this happens, I imagine the will to, to fight back is pretty strong. But at the same time, if you don't know what your options are or you can't afford them, um, what do you do? Do you, you know, if someone's doing something in a church, it's like, I usually go to my priest. Well, if my, my child's telling me my priest is doing this, what do I do? Do I go to the police department? What if they tell me to do all these things? Like, what is the best path of reporting that, that you see in a circumstance for anybody that, that just doesn't know where to go and that you could easily say, this would, you know, this is where I would start? Law enforcement. Go right to law enforcement. The problem that I see is that a lot of these parents, they report to the principal, the teacher, they report to the, the pastor, the priest. But the problem is that's not an independent agency that's going to conduct a, 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 an actual investigation. So go straight to law enforcement, make a report. You can remain anonymous most times. And at least as far as I know, in all the states that I've been to, you can remain anonymous and it's confidential what you report and who you report to. So you have to run to law enforcement or else it might never go anywhere. And a lot of times I do get a lot of cases where a, t a little boy, a little girl is telling their parent that, hey, I was molested by my teacher. And then what does a teacher do? Of course, they're going to deny it. And the parents get so frustrated because they see the, the consequences of the molestation. The child gets isolated. The child doesn't want to hang out with their friends, doesn't like spending time with, you know, their male um, family members, things like that. And they're saying, well, how can this be? How can my child get molested? And nobody does anything about it. Well, a lot of times it is, you know, the teacher's word, the, the pastor's word against the, the student. But what I recommend is go straight to law enforcement. So this concept of anonymity, what is, can you explain that a little bit? Because I think that's something that I, I didn't know. Like you go to a police department, you file a report on this. Will they investigate with anonymity against the accuser until charges are to be filed like can you can you talk about that a little bit sure so in the state of california and as far as i'm aware most states uh there are mandatory reporting laws so anybody that works with kids 
you know, coaches, teachers, clergymen, uh, they have a duty to report uh, potential or reasonable suspicion of child abuse within child abuse within 36 hours of receiving that information. And whenever they report that, a lot of the times they fill out this suspected child abuse report, which is a SCAR, and they have to send that off. And all their information and whoever reported it is confidential. Now, if a parent reports it to a, a desk, uh, to a law enforcement, if they walk into the station themselves, because it involves sexual molestation of a child, their information will remain confidential. Same with the child's. Now, the law enforcement agency or the detective they can use that information and say hey you know we heard that you and little johnny have been spending some time behind the closed doors but yes most of the information will remain confidential for forever because it involves sexual molestation allegations hmm. of a child that's i mean you know as much as you hate to hate to say it but it matters right knowing that anonymity is if, if you if you believe something's happening and you're afraid of everything that we talked about before being the person that ruins a reputation um, worried about whatever internal struggle that might cause just coming from saying something you can remain anonymous to report something that's it's, it's incredibly important to report especially with children yeah, and, and it's important, I think, too, because a lot of the parents that we deal with, when they do report it, they're ostracized by their communities, you know, because it's usually the teacher that everybody likes, and they're, again, it's us versus them. It's like, oh, well, that teacher's one of us, and that parent, she's crazy. She, I don't know what she's thinking about. No, she's weird. We're not going to allow her in the PTA meetings. We're not going to allow her into these groups. Uh, Retribution, exactly, for just saying what they think happened. So it's important to report directly to law enforcement and not to within that organization. Because there are no standards of anonymity to the principal, I imagine. Of course not. Of course not. And the, the principal. Yeah, and that, that, that'll spread, especially in smaller communities. We have a, in the community that I grew up in, there's, you know, now it's become middle to high, high upper income, and we have a a, a case in which a parent reported her student being abused by another student and now she's ostracized by the community nobody will speak to her it makes it makes sense that like, when i actually think about it because an organization ha has like the like they want to be around so they're going to try and protect themselves that's what they're going to do so bringing in a third party makes a lot of sense um Man. i want to start to wrap up because we're at time and i want to say thank you like Thank you like for what you're doing and for taking time with us. And I want to ask you if you want to leave listeners with any pearl of wisdom or any thought, like what would you leave them with? Well, first off, thank you guys. Uh, you know, I, I say a lot of these things to my fiance and I'm sure she's tired of hearing it. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, but you know, this is, it's nice to know that people are actually interested and care about these topics because it, it does matter to our communities all over the country. And, and even though they say, well, that can't happen in my community, it's probably happening right now in your community, wherever you are. Um, as far as like a pearl of wisdom, uh, to whoever's listening, you know, listen to your fellow man. If they've been wronged, stand with them. Don't just say, well, that's their problem, that's their issue do something, say something, 
be an active member in your community because if, like Martin Luther King said, if there's an injustice to one, there's an injustice to all, and it happens all the time. So don't turn your head, don't put your head in the sand and pretend like it's not happening in your community when you can do something about it.